Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Paul's exhortation is remarkable in at least two ways. It's remarkable in what he's asking us to do. And it's remarkable in the fact that he is asking us to do it now. In chapter 13, Paul has been writing about our obligation or responsibility as citizens in the kingdom. Remember chapter 12 is about service. Remember chapter 13 is about citizenship. He's spoken of our duty to love our enemies, to obey the government, to our duty to fellow citizens and the payment of debts. Now Paul turns attention to our duty in light of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds the Romans that Christ is coming back, that time for all of us will soon run out. We are Christ's servants. We desire to be found faithful in him. Our salvation is about to take on its full and final manifestation. In this passage, Paul exhorts the Romans to wake up, clean up, grow up, because Jesus is about to show up. And we're going to greet him. Years ago, I've sang the song so many times. We used to sing, when he returns in glory, he'll come to claim his own. We must keep the faith and let the fire burn. We used to sing, Maranatha, Maranatha, the Lord is coming back. The master's coming home. We must be filled with love to truly greet him. We don't want to meet Jesus caked. And soiled with our selfishness and our sin. We want our garments free from dirt and all manner of filthiness. We want to greet our Savior in simplicity and maturity and integrity. We grow up by making provision for the Spirit and not the flesh. Our maturation comes through nutrition. And the nutrition comes from the person of Christ and the word of God. We, if we feed our flesh, we'll remain stunted and retarded and developmentally disabled. But if we feed on the things of the spirit, we'll grow, we'll mature. So what time is it? Paul writes, 
It's time to wake up in verse 11. It's time for a new wardrobe in verse 12. It's a time to walk straight in verse 13. It's a time to wear Jesus in verse 14. So it's a time, he says, to wake up. Look again in verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed Paul begins with an observation do this what put off the old life put on the new life knowing the time what time is it How are we to understand the times and how are we to deal with the circumstances and time in which we're living in? The word Paul chooses for knowing and do this knowing the time. It's the Greek word eridotes. It speaks of a certainty, something that we must not overlook. Let me see if I can help you. In the ancient world, it would have been used to describe a person who's getting ready to embark on a journey or take a voyage and you've got to get to the harbor on time. We might think of it as leaving the station or we might think of it as going to the airport. When you have to consider the time of departure, you have to take that into consideration. If you've ever had to leave from DIA at oh dark 30... The flight's leaving at 7.30. And they say, you have to be there two hours early. And you go, 6.30, 5.30? It's going to take me well over an hour to get there. And so you begin to, to do the math and you begin to think about the circumstances. There are two words that translate time in the Greek New Testament. Chronos and kairos. We have borrowed words from that word chronos, chronology, or chronometric dating. Chronology speaks of a duration of time or the unfolding of time. But Paul uses the word kairos here. Kairos speaks of a limited time or a critical time or a season of time. Several linguists conclude that the word means a critical, limited important period. Ralph Earl points out that in the modern Greek language, the word kairos is the word that they use to describe the weather. In other words, it's the specific thing that unfolds as you watch it. The New English Bible translates this, remember how critical the moment is. Another translation, another reason for right living is that You know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up. The coming of our salvation is drawing nearer than when we first believed. What time is it? These are the last times. The final moments. The Bible refers broadly to these times as the last days in Acts chapter 2 verse 17. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. 
Again, when the Bible speaks of the last days, it's not talking about the unfolding of chronology. It's talking about the quality of the time period spent. And so when the Bible says these are the last days, it makes reference to the reality that Jesus has lived, he's died, he's risen from the dead. We are living in a day. When you can experience grace and mercy and love and redemption and reconciliation, you are living in a time when you can be reconciled to God because of the power and the presence and the life of Jesus. The last days began when Jesus rose from the dead and the last days will continue until that day. Or our day. It's when Jesus could come back. And we believe that he can come back at any moment. Paul is making a reference to the day that we will meet Jesus face to face. And your meeting with Jesus will be one of the most important. Who who are we kidding? It's going to be the most important moment in all of your existence. You may have had the privilege of meeting important people or famous people or whoever. But I guarantee you, there will be no one and nothing that will be more important than the day that you see Jesus face to face. No wonder Paul says, wake up out of sleep. You know that word. Wake up, get ready, get your body in motion. My little grandchildren will watch the movie Madagascar where where the little animals are dancing and playing. You've got to move it, move it, move it. You've got to move it, move it, move it. You know what that's like. And by the way, the Greek word for sleep here, you know it. There's a word that has come into our own language that we borrowed from the the, the Greek word. It's hypnos. A, A kind of a derivation of that word is hypnos. We get the word hypnotic from it. It means to slip into that period, if you will, where you lose consciousness, where you slip into a dreamlike state. We live in a fallen world, and a fallen world sometimes produces a constant state of frustration and fatigue and weariness and tiredness and exhaustion. And so the, the, the lethargy, the apathy, and the indifference that he's talking about isn't towards the unbeliever. It's towards the person who identifies with Jesus, for the person who identifies with Christ, for the person who says, I know and love and believe in Jesus. Paul is speaking about people who claim to follow Christ, but somehow they've fallen asleep. And so Paul wonders whether or not we're going to wake up and whether or not we're watching. Do you get up every morning with that earnest expectation? Do you have a song on your lips that you sing today? Maybe this day my beloved will come. Paul lists the incentives to avoid lethargy. The incentive, of course, is the second coming of Jesus. Time is running out. 
when he's writing to the Romans, he's basically saying, time is running out for you to love your neighbor. Time is running out for you to love your friends. Time is running out for you to love your family. Time is running out to preach the gospel. Time is running out to reach the lost. Time is running out and we must work while it's still day. The night is coming. The, 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 the darkness is descending. My wife has a clock and every hour on the hour it strikes and then a song is played. I heard about a little boy who noticed that in his home their clock was broken. And for some reason when the clock would start chiming it wouldn't just hit one time or two times or even ten times or twelve times. But it would ring for sixteen times and the little boy ran into his mother's room and he said, Mommy, Mommy, it's later than it's ever been before. And that's kind of the idea. Paul is urging a sense of of reality. In one sense, it's later than it's ever been before. Jesus is going to return personally and individually. And some of us, the time is way closer than you could ever imagine. Almost invariably, when we talk about this important subject and I look out over the audience... There's a very good chance that one or more of you won't be here this time next year. Kent Hughes writes soberly, each ache, each pain, each gray hair, each new wrinkle, each funeral is a reminder that it's later than it's ever been before. It's time to love your neighbor. It's time to love your family. It's time to love your children. Paul writes, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. When he wrote those words, it was in anticipation of the coming of Jesus. And if you can imagine, if that was written 1,900 years, how much more should we be on the edge of your Do you know that the word salvation, by the way, is spoken of in the New Testament in three different tenses? In the past, 2 Timothy 1.9. In the present, Acts 2.47. In the future, here in chapter 13, verse 11, Paul is making a reference to the full and final day, the glorious day, when our salvation is fully and finally realized we were delivered From this present evil world. We are being delivered from this present evil world. We will soon be delivered from this present evil world. And so again the Bible speaks of salvation in the past. In the present. In the future. John Phillips writes quote. Viewed as to the past it is salvation. From the penalty of sin. Viewed in the present. It is salvation from the power of sin. And viewed in the future, it is salvation from the presence of sin. Jesus in the past broke and satisfied the penalty. Jesus is in the present liberating us from the power of sin. And Jesus will one day deliver us. From the very presence of sin. As someone has put it, quote, 
Every day we pitch our tent a day's march nearer home. If you've ever been on a long journey and all you wanted to do was to get home, you begin to understand that waiting at that airport or waiting for that flight or waiting for that train or waiting as you're driving across the place, it's getting you a little bit closer. It's getting you a little bit closer to your destination. And if you've ever been motivated to wake up early in order to not miss an important appointment, he's drawing on that sentiment. We're to live in a certain expectation of his return. We can no longer avoid the significance of the season. We can no longer avoid the signs that are given to us in nature, in society, the spiritual signs, the signs in world politics, the signs in technology, the signs in the Middle East, the signs of increased instability of the economy, the signs of increased violence, the signs of increased lawlessness, the signs of increased immorality, increased humanism, materialism, hedonism, depravity, calling good evil and evil good. If you haven't taken a good look around you, wake up. What is different? You might be saying, well, all of the things that you cited were all things that were common to every generation. And I'm here to tell you that the invention and the manufacture and the deployment of global thermonuclear devices and the establishment of the modern state of Israel and the occupation of Jerusalem by Jews, the global threat of Islam, the establishment of a European Union, the awakening of China, a global technology, a global communication, and the possibility of global extinction has never been more real than it is right at this very moment. And so Paul invites you, look around you, examine your heart, remind yourself of the uncertainty of future existence. But then Paul says, remind yourself of the certainty of the reality that Jesus said that he was going to return. Do you remember the signs that were given in Luke chapter 21, verse 28? Jesus said, so when all these things begin to happen, stand up straight, look up, for your salvation is near. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John writes, My dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the end of the world has come. And so the Bible invites you to understand the reality that you will face God either at Christ's return or your death. Time is running out. In Amos chapter 4, verse 12, the prophet wrote, Prepare to meet your God. You know, in England, in Westminster Abbey, in the little chapel graveyard that, that is there, there's a gigantic marble slab 
And engraved on that slab is written these words. Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. And someone cleverly wrote underneath it. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. You have to fight the urge to follow just anyone. And so he says, it's a time for a new wardrobe. Look at verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Paul, in asking the question, what time is it? He says, it's time for a new wardrobe. And you should ask the question that my wife always asks when we get ready to go on a trip. What what am I going to wear? I always have the same answer. Clothes. We have to put off the dirty deeds of darkness and we have to put on the pure armor of light. Watching sights the enemy. Praying fights the enemy. And so now is the time, Paul writes, to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's time for a new wardrobe. And so what are the works of darkness that Paul is making reference to? These are the things that we desire to do. When the lights are off and the darkness has descended, when no one is looking, these are the things that you know are unacceptable to Jesus. These are the things that are unacceptable to the Holy Spirit. These are the things that cause harm. These are the things which should bring shame. These are the things that we do and we fear the consequences. These are the things that we do that tear us down instead of Build us up. In John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said, and this is the condemnation or the judicial pronouncement of guilt, that the light has come into the world and men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light that his deeds should be exposed. The darkness and the light are those metaphors that we use to contrast and compare all that Jesus wants us to do and all that Jesus wants us to abandon. You know, when my son joined the army, there came a point where he had to take off his civilian clothes and he had to put on his military wardrobe and when he puts on the 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 clothes of an army officer it comes with it the expectation that he is on a mission and that he has a new obligation and a new responsibility and the verb tenses here in the original language are decisive when paul says Cast off. It's an idiomatic expression in that language which means strip. It means peel it off. Peel off the life that you used to have. Peel off the old life and put on the new life. 
You see, the Bible doesn't just simply invite you to stop lying. It says, start telling the truth. The Bible doesn't invite you to to simply stop begging. It says, get a job. The Bible says, stop stealing. Start working. So what do you need to do if you're going to stop worrying? You have to start trusting. It's a whole new world. We're to live differently and we're to be identified by our new set of clothes. Years ago on my radio program, I interviewed a Salvation Army officer. And he told me that his Salvation Army uniform, as odd as it is, is always a conversation starter. His son attended Columbine High School. And once a month, his young son would put on his Salvation Army uniform. And it drew attention to the reality that his was a different world and his was a different life and his was a different direction. The works of darkness are every and all sinful attitudes and habits as unbelievers were to put on the armor of light. And remember, this is a kind of an armor that protects you against all of the warfare against the enemy. But it was never intended to be a cloak to disguise your identity. The armor of light provides spiritual protection and spiritual illumination. It becomes a metaphor for the armor of righteousness, the full armor that's listed in Ephesians chapter 6. And I think that it's an armor of light so that we can see our enemies and so that we can avoid them. You know what it is. The helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of the gospel, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The point being that we have supernatural resources, not least of which is prayer. You have the supernatural resources to live your life differently, even unexpectedly. And so also, look at what time it is. It's a time to walk straight in verse 13. He says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Paul exhorts the Christians to walk right in broad daylight. By the way, the Greek word for walk is very, very interesting. It's the word peripateo. There's borrowed words that we have. You all know what a periscope is. It gives you the ability to look around. Most of you know what a perimeter is. If I say to my law enforcement friends, establish the perimeter. It means, it means surround the place. Parapateo means to walk or to walk in a circle. Here, it's a metaphor for the Christian living. You walk. Your walk has a beginning. It has a a middle. It has an end. 
It's Paul's exhortation to live your lives in Christ. And we're to understand that much of our life is open to inspection to everyone around us. And you might be thinking, I don't care what people think. It doesn't matter to me what people think. I know that my heart is right with God. But Paul invites you to consider something, and that is, you should care what they think. In this sense, you should care because what you do, what you say, and what you do, people draw conclusions about Christ and Christianity. Do you think that people notice you when you're at the restaurant? Do you think that they notice you when you yell and scream at the server? And then you bow your head and say, let's bless our food. Jesus, thank you for this food. And you begin to understand, wait a minute, wait a minute, I just saw what you did. How is what you do so disconnected from what you claim? I heard of a sign posted by a dry cleaning establishment. If your clothes aren't becoming to you, they should be coming to us. I like that. Or the men's warehouse. You'll like the way you look. You know, if you go to Jesus, if you put on the armor of light, if you put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, this new wardrobe is going to be so becoming. He says, as in the day, the idea being in broad daylight. Certain activities are unbecoming in broad daylight. In broad daylight, there are no dark corners or dark shadows to hide behavior or conceal circumstances. This is Paul's way of saying, live your life so that everybody can see what you're doing in full view. Are you living a life of reproach or Non-reproach. Does the imminent return of Jesus have any effect on the way that you're living right now? Paul says, walk properly. The word in the original language is a word that describes a walk of honesty or decency or honor. The idea is that this is the kind of behavior that will elicit responses of respect. Now Paul spells out the wrong way. And you might be thinking, well, why does Paul spell it out? Why bring up the negative? When I became a Christian, there were certain things that I knew were harmful, that were not helpful. I knew that when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, as a young man, I was only 16 years old. I knew that my life needed to be fundamentally different. I, need, I knew that smoking marijuana was no longer going to be an option for me. I knew that these kinds of immoral behaviors and rebellion and disobedience, that the life that I had lived and, and the reality that I had embraced was the wrong way. Paul is spelling it out. To turn from the life forever, the life of 
using harmful drugs, of practicing ritual magic or witchcraft, of stealing and lying. The list could go on and on. But Paul is saying to the Romans, you need to stop these things immediately and not do them ever again. Things like revelry, that means rioting or partying. It, it, it's the, the, the Greek word komoi, which basically was the Roman party. Guys gone goofy, girls gone wild, drunkenness, orgies. Pa- people in Paul's day had parties and drunkenness and orgies. And you, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't surprise me. Few things have, have changed. When I drove to church this morning and I park in our parking lot and I walk towards the door and I pick up a can of Pap's Blue Ribbon beer out of our parking lot. And it was just a reminder. We live in a world where people are trying to make the pain go away. They're trying to make the, the, the issues go away. They're trying to figure out a way so that they don't have to look at the world in which they live and they don't have to look inside of their own heart. But all of a sudden, Paul invites you to look around, to look on the outside and look on the inside. Not in lewdness, he says, or debauchery, or sexual immorality, or prostitution. The word is a word that that meant bed. But in the first century, it meant unlawful sexual conduct, lewdness, debauchery, inappropriate sexual contact, illicit relations. In a nutshell, every kind of sexual contact that's outside of marriage, Paul condemns intemperance, a lack of control, rioting, drunkenness. Paul condemns impurity, lewdness, and lust, words that describe sexual immorality. Paul condemns intolerance, strife, and envy, hostility, and tension in relationship. And you might be thinking, rioting and drunkenness got it under control. Impurity, lewdness, and lust, lust sexual immorality got it in, under control. And then Paul says, strife and envy. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the wicked way in which families find reasons to hurt each other, to yell at each other, to be mad at one another, to be upset with one another. Lust or wantonness or sensuality or vice, these are ugly words. Even in the Greek language. Wantonness or lust. Describes a person. Not simply given to immorality. It describes a person. Where the border of shame has disappeared. In other words. This describes a person where you have a line. Or a boundary that you draw. And the person crosses that line. And then you draw another line. And they cross that line. And you draw another line. And they cross that line. This, this 
This is one of those things where people are absent shame. There is no line. There is no boundary that they're willing to draw in their own life. Years ago, there was a lawsuit filed on behalf of a 17-year-old who exposed her breasts on a video called Girls Gone Wild. And apparently the laws about indecent exposure or underage pornography were being challenged. And remarkably, in Florida, the judge ruled that a teen has the right to expose herself. We're living in a culture where more and more people are invited to cross the line, to cross the border, where shame isn't even a part of who we are or what we do. In our culture, we're bombarded by pictures and pamphlets and songs and music about immodesty and indecency. When Paul uses the word envy, it's the word zealous. And it can have a good meaning. It can have a bad meaning. The underlying meaning is passion. And so here, the idea is there's two kinds of passions A passion to do what's right and a passion to do what's wrong. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, let us purify ourselves from everything that makes our body or our soul unclean. Let us be completely holy by living in a kind of reverential awe of God. And so look at verse 14, a time to wear Jesus. He says, but put on. The Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We might say, rather clothe yourself with Jesus. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You'll notice that Paul doesn't say, clothe yourself with church. Or with well wishes. Or even with Bible reading. Or even with a decent way of behaving. It's not about the rules and the regulations or about the expectations. Paul invites you to live differently because Jesus really is inside of you. But also outside of you. We clothe ourselves in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, What does clothing do? You know, years ago, someone told me something remarkable, and I never forgot it. The person said, women do not dress to attract men. Women dress to impress other ladies. And I went, really? Are you serious? Is that even possible? What do clothes do? Well, it depends on who's wearing the clothes, right? Clothes touch us. They protect us. They warm us. They cover us. They hide us. And so the believer takes Jesus wherever he or she may go. We put on Jesus. We make no 
provision. The word is pronoion. That means you cut off all of the supplies. It's a military term. In order to feed the enemy, they have to have food and clothing and ammunition. And if you cut off the food and the clothing and the ammunition, they have no way to wage war. And if you cut off the food and the ammunition of the flesh, it has no way to wage war against you. This means you have to think ahead. This means you have a plan. We clothe ourselves in the life of Jesus, in the example of Jesus, in order to control our sinful desires. Paul, or actually um, John wrote, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. In 1 John 2.15 it says, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. And he's not talking about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing called love. He's not talking about magnificent waterfalls and the Grand Canyon. He's talking about the world that stands in opposition to Christ and to the gospel of God and to the things of God. Ray Stedman offers this illustration. He says, when I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending To be a part of me all day. They're to be with me wherever I go and what I do. They cover me. They make me presentable to others. This is the purpose of clothes. In the same way the apostle is saying, put on Jesus when you get up in the morning. Make him a part of your day. In everything that you do, call upon him. Live your life in Christ. We're wrapped up in Jesus. Unquote. So he's our label. He's our designer. (laughs) Last night in Longmont, I was teaching a Bible study and I was wearing a Hawaiian shirt. And I said, this is my Barack Obama shirt. And they laughed, yeah. They go, why do you call it a Barack Obama shirt? And I go, doesn't it scream Hawaiian? But if you lift the label, look what it says. Made in Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, that's what really made it funny. Here's, it's this wannabe Hawaiian shirt. Imagine that you're wearing clothes and it's supposed to look like Jesus, but it doesn't really... Act like Jesus. So what time is it? It's time to wake up. Henri Nguyen said, I often think a life is like a day. It goes by so fast. If I'm so careless with my days, how can I be careful with my life? I know that somehow I have not fully come to believe that urgent things can wait while I attend to what is truly important It finally boils down to a question of a deep and a strong conviction. Once I am truly convinced that preparing my heart is more important than preparing the Christmas tree, I will be a lot less frustrated at the end of the day, unquote. It's his way of saying, I spend a lot of my time preparing my home, preparing my future. But what are you doing about the preparation that is so necessary and so urgent? The preparation of the heart. What time is it? 
It's a time for a new wardrobe. By the way, there are seven things that the believer are told to put on in the Bible. We're told to put on and be empowered by the Holy Spirit in Luke 24, 49. We are to put on and be clothed with immortality in 1 Corinthians 15, 53. We're to put on and be clothed with Jesus here in Romans 13, 14. We are to put on and be clothed with the new man, Ephesians 4, 24. We are to to put on and be clothed with the nature of God, Colossians 3.10. We are to put on and be clothed with the armor of light and of God, Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. We are to put on and be clothed with love, Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. So what time is it? Time to walk straight, verse 13. Time to wear Jesus. Charles Finney used to say, quote, a revival may be expected whenever Christians are found willing to make sacrifices necessary to carry it on. They must be willing to sacrifice their feelings. They must be willing to sacrifice their business, their time in order to help forward the work, unquote. He also said, the experience of revival is nothing more than simply a new beginning of obedience to God. You see, this is why the exhortation is so remarkable. Not simply in what Paul is asking us to do, but when to do it. Paul is telling the Romans, if ever there was a time to ditch the old life, it's now. If ever there was a time to embrace the new life, it's now. It's to make the change now. It's to walk differently now. I'm going to invite you to do exactly that. Pray with me, won't you? Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that time is short. Lord, we think about everyone we love, who we no longer get to touch and kiss and talk to. Lord, we're so grateful for the times that we have with the people we love. But Lord, we pray that as the clock is ticking and the countdown is taking place, that we would become profoundly aware of the most important event that will ever happen the day we meet Jesus. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who is experiencing somewhat of distress over that idea. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray that they would, in simplicity and integrity, cry out to you and say, I want to live my life for Jesus. I want my life to be different. I don't want it to be the same. I'm tired of rebellion and disobedience. And I want to walk in submission and humility and joy, knowing that my life doesn't belong to me anymore. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray that you would look deep, deep into people's hearts. Lord, I happen to know that my one important job is to prepare everyone I meet to meet you. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use these words of encouragement to motivate people to live differently. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thank you.